Welcome once again to our Pillars series. This uh, week we continue to look at pillar number five, which is the church. Last week we started to look at the fact that um, the church is uh, both visible and invisibly spoken of in scripture, meaning there is the heavenly perspective, the invisible church, which is made up of the the elect or those who truly believe, the sincere uh, professor, uh, and only those who have truly known uh, the salvation of Christ in all ages. And then there's the visible church, which is in any given age, those who profess the faith and their children. Um, and uh, I use this uh, circular uh, image. It's not the best uh, visual, perhaps, but but hopefully helpful. If we think about one of these circles, we have a um, uh, two overlapping circles, and if we think of uh, the the blue one as the invisible church, the heavenly reality, and then the the white circle as the visible church here on earth, and one of them, uh, the invisible church, has only those who are truly saved. And the visible church has those who are truly saved plus false professors, uh, those who don't truly know Christ. And there's a big overlap between the two. The New Testament doesn't always distinguish between the two when it's talking about the church. And yet we can understand that both things are being referenced uh, in the New Testament. Well, if we can think of the church as visible and invisible. Uh, sometimes we want to challenge, why would I even need to be a part of the visible church? Why would I need to be a member of a visible church? Because after all, I am a true believer. Are you saying that if I don't uh, go through the hoops to become an, a member of a visible church, I'm not a believer at all, I'm not truly saved? And of course, the answer is no, uh, that's not what's being said. Uh, but uh, we also can't simply say, well, I'm part of the invisible church, and therefore, who needs the visible church? Uh, because scripture, in several ways, would suggest that this is not uh, a good approach. We could think of Hebrews 13, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Uh, well, says someone, I, I don't have to join a church to be faithful at worship. Um, but there are other things in the New Testament as well that suggest that there was officially church membership. Let me just list a few of them, uh, three of them. First, that someone was keeping count. Second, that someone was putting out. And third, who was putting those people out? So first, someone was keeping count. You can see this in the, the first half of the book of Acts, especially. Uh, Acts 2.41, for example, where we read that on the day of Pentecost, uh, after Peter and the other apostles had preached, uh, and the people said, what shall we do? And they said, um, be saved from this perverse generation, in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added. Uh, added to them, many of our translations put, 
uh, it could be added to the number. Uh, but the question is uh, added to them as in, you know, these are just numbers on a given day. Or is it something richer and fuller than that? Well, after being added to them, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And that is a description of the apostolic worship services that the church held. And then it continues. Then fear came upon uh, the, the culture around them because of what was being done. And those who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And continuing daily with one accord, breaking bread house from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I realize not all the translations have added to the church daily there, but it does appear that line in the vast majority of uh, manuscripts. And so I think uh, 47, it's not an interpretive thing on the New King James perspective to say uh, he was adding to the church. That's actually there in many, many Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And so uh, here we have what is being added to. It's the, the church and someone was keeping count. That's going to continue with several other events in the book of Acts in the first half where more were added. This many were added. Uh, there was a keeping count or a keeping uh, watch over those who were added. It's not just the idea of a number, but it's a number added to the visible church. So there, there was uh, some, someone counting. Uh, there was also someone putting out, uh, putting people out from the visible church. First uh, John 2.19 tells us of the visible church, there are some that have gone out from us showing that they were never truly of us. That is, they we thought they were. They were church members. They attended regularly. They had made a profession of faith. We thought that they were truly part of the church. Now they have left the church. Well, you don't have to have a, an official church membership list to uh, make a statement like that. But you do have to have some concept of church membership to fulfill what 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 say. Um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. just realized I'm in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 reads reads as follows in the name of our lord jesus christ when you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of the lord jesus christ deliver such a one someone impenitent and refusing to repent deliver such a one to satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord Jesus. Um, he is saying, uh, exercise church discipline and put someone out. Christ himself 
talks like this as well. Matthew 18, 17 through 20, you have a personal responsibility to go and confront a brother or a sister in Christ about their sin. If they refuse to listen, you take two or three witnesses with you. And if they listen, don't listen even then, if they continue to be impenitent in their sin, then you deliver them to the church and the church puts them out of the midst if they won't repent. Um, who who defines if there's no church membership who can be put out of the church or why if you're not a member of a local church why would you care what the local church says about you uh, there's some concept here of a local church membership I've had uh, someone say to me in the past uh, you know, I'm I'm not joining the church, but you know, I I'm you know I'm a submissive person to the leadership of this church. And my response was, I I actually don't know if you are submissive to the leadership of this church, or if you have just agreed with everything we've said so far. It's not submitting to the authority if you actually already agree with the authority. They're just doing what you want them to, and. Sure enough, in this particular instance, the minute there was something they disagreed with, the party left the church. See, there is something to committing to a local body and submitting yourself uh, officially to the eldership of a church. But that also brings us to the third uh, thing in the New Testament that assumes church membership. Not only someone was counting and someone was putting out, but then who was counting and who was putting out. Uh, Christ talks to the apostles about giving them the keys to the kingdom. Um, And in the New Testament, the church discipline is something that is expected from the leadership of the church. In fact, the church is assumed to have leadership. God gives uh, pastors and elders, and in a different category, deacons, as three office bearers, uh, each with their responsibilities. And how are these to be appointed? How are these to be uh, uh, chosen? in the congregation. Well, they're to be chosen from the congregation. But what defines who is part of the congregation? If you don't believe in church membership, uh, and uh, I were to say to you, well, can someone who just started coming last week be put into office as an elder in the church? And you say, oh no, of course not. Well, what's the of course not? Uh, Well, uh, you know, they need to be a regular. Okay, you've just defined a membership list. A membership list which is made up of regulars. Uh, Okay, but um, what what defines a regular? Uh, Does someone who just started coming to our church on January 1st, they've been here for three months, is such a person a regular? Can we put that person in office? And if you say, well, no, I think you need to be here longer than that. Maybe they need to be here for a year. Well, then you've just defined membership further. Membership is those who have regularly been members, in att- uh, 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 worshipers in attendance for one year. Right? That, that's a type of church membership. 
I don't think it's a very uh, great way to go about figuring out your church membership, but it, it is a type of church membership. But you have to have something like that before you can appoint leaders and assess people uh, in different ways. So, so we have uh, the, the numbers added to uh, the church. We have the, the apostles calling us to put some out from the church. And we have that there are some within the church who are uh, given the responsibility, especially to shepherd and disciple, and sadly, when times call for it, discipline those within the church. Um, I'm going to leave that for the moment, but this assumes leadership. The New Testament assumes leadership. First Timothy, uh, the book of Titus, Acts chapter 6, these all present us with the offices of pastor, elder, and deacon, um, and the requirements for a man to hold any one of those offices. Um, but uh, what form of church government fits in the Reformed System. I want to talk about this very briefly, but uh, in college I was a history major and my uh, focus for my thesis paper was on uh, the Westminster Assembly, the people who wrote the Confession of Faith, on the topic of church government. And uh, there, there are four basic systems or types of church government out there. Um, at Westminster they were referred to as Erastian Presbyterian, Congregational, and Independent. Uh, Erastian is not really a word we use a lot today, but uh, we might think of it as kind of uh, an Episcopal style or a hierarchical style. Uh, so think of the Roman Catholic Church, some Lutheran groups, uh, not all. Um, Ep Episcopal churches, Church of England would be in this category. Uh, churches where there is a, a top-down mentality, right? Whether it's the Pope or uh, the King of England as the head of the Church of England, or, or whether it's a, a group of uh, uh, bishops or pastors who oversee, and then regionally you might have a district superintendent or a group of people like that, and then it trickles down, and then there's the local church with its eldership. And uh, in an Erastian or Episcopal style government, uh, there are things that are being dictated down. Um, the second category would be uh, Presbyterian. And although sometimes that's mistaken for a top-down approach, and some Presbyterian groups have devolved into that, historic Presbyterianism is actually a, a horizontal thing. It's the local church in connection with the broader church and the authority over any given uh, issue is to be handled on the most appropriate local level. So appointment of elders is done on the local level. Uh, the voting on a pastor is done on the local level. You're not appointed a pastor. 
but you as a congregation uh, call, give a call to a pastor. Now that pastor uh, may go through exams uh, within the presbytery from other pastors and elders, uh, may be examined and ordained by them. Uh, and so there is the uh, possibility in a Presbyterian group that someone would not pass those exams and so the presbytery would inform the local church that perhaps this person needs more study or maybe that this person is not a sound uh, shepherd for them. And then that church, of course, has to make a decision. Are we going to stick with the presbytery and uh, not have this person appointed now or are we going to follow their advice? But see, there's, a, there, there's not this domineering Feel. It's a, it's a whatever the most local appropriate action is. Then there's historic congregationalism. We often combine congregational and independent in our mindset in terms of the government aspect. Uh, but uh, congregationalism historically is also a connected on a horizontal plane uh, approach. There's the local congregation, they call their pastor, they appoint their elders, uh, but they have some form of fellowship. Uh, some groups refer to it as a being a federation of churches. That is, they don't have quite so much uh, denominational um, uh, pull. Uh, there's a less uh, said on a, on a group level. And uh, it's less official of a, a grouping, but there is connectionalism. There is a connection to other like-minded churches. And then there's independent, which is uh, what it says uh, historically. Uh, you know, you would appoint your pastor and elders locally. You would not uh, need to get other pastors involved to ordain your pastor. You could just lay hands on locally. Education tends to be a less important thing for the leadership uh, in such churches. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that for the moment for the sake of time. But I will say this, that historically in the Reformed circles, uh, Westminster being a prime example in the debate called the Great Debate, the biggest debate they had at Westminster when writing the confession and catechisms was on this topic of church government. And they very quickly cut off the two end points. Independent was not seen as having a, a firm New Testament grounding at all. There's connection between the churches in the New Testament. And an Episcopal uh, hierarchical approach also is not seen in the New Testament. And so Westminster Assembly uh, had uh, Presbyterianism came out on top, but the real discussion was between Congregationalists and Presbyterians, and uh, there was love between them. There are journal entries by Presbyterians saying, wow, so-and-so's argument for Congregationalism today almost made me want to agree with him. And uh, uh, there, were press, uh, there were congregationalists writing, wow, uh, young Gillespie today was just phenomenal in his argument. I think he's wrong, but he definitely won the debate. Uh, there, there was this love and, and unity. And so I, th I think we have to say that in the Reformed tradition, even though Presbyterianism won out at Westminster, 
Even there, there was an understanding that Reformed believers held to both viewpoints. Both viewpoints that are uh, local authority in connection with the broader body of Christ and the nuance between how much authority is on the denominational level or federational uh, community uh, is the thing that distinguishes the two groupings. But they're very similar in a lot of ways. And on the local level, they feel very similar. I'm the pastor of a congregational church, and I'm uh, an ordained minister in a Presbyterian denomination. And so I get to see the best of both worlds. And on the local level, it's a very similar church government. It's elder run on a local level. Now, I just want in showing why independent and Episcopal or Erastian were kind of cut out very quickly, I want to take you to the primary text that is important when we're thinking in the New Testament about connectionalism and the church and what that looks like. You can read it in Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to read all of this because Acts 15, it's 6 through 29. It's quite a long read. But here is the first council of the church, the Jerusalem church. And uh, we read, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. Uh, what... Uh, what um, exactly is going on here. Uh, there's an issue, a theological issue, and the apostles think that it's not one that should be dealt with just each individual church, independency, uh, deciding for themselves whether Jews and Gentiles are equal in the church. And so they come together as a council. It is elders and pastors and apostles from uh, the, the greater Jerusalem region. Uh, and they meet together and discuss, come up with a conclusion. Then they even have the gall to send the decision to the church plants and the mission works and the further out churches around uh, Europe and Asia telling them this is how the church uh, will move forward on this topic of Jew and Gentile. So independency doesn't fit with Acts chapter 15. Well, you might say hierarchical fits with it. And you might even argue, well, see, the apostles told everyone what to believe. But here's the interesting thing. While Peter stands up and testifies in Acts chapter 15 and gives his opinion, he doesn't demand that everyone vote accordingly. Paul and Barnabas, other apostles, uh, uh, speak about what God has been doing in their mission works in the Gentile churches and nonetheless, they don't demand the verdict or just dictate what the verdict is. James, the half-brother of our Lord, who seems to have been the moderator of this first council of the church, does not tell everyone how it's going to go. No, all of these apostles, uh, who Paul himself says in Galatians, seemed to be the pillars of the church, who Ephesians tell us are the foundation of the church. Nonetheless, they rely on the vote 
of everyone present, pastors and elders, which means elders of a local church in Bethlehem would have the same uh, power and authority on this outcome as the Apostle Peter himself. Hypothetically, uh, uh, you know, two elders from some little congregation somewhere in the region uh, could have outvoted, negatively voted in the opposite direction as Peter and Paul and canceled out their votes. Isn't that astonishing? Of course, they didn't. There was this unanimous consent of the church and the verdict goes out to other churches who are expected to receive that decision. Um, you could argue uh, the connectionalism of a congregational uh, perspective or Presbyterian from this. Uh, Presbyterian seems a little more obvious uh, in a lot of ways, uh, but uh, here we have this groundwork laid for some form of connectionalism coming together on important moments in the life of the church where elders as well as pastors come together to vote and represent the local bodies of Christ. And uh, so the Reformed perspective is one that is connected, Presbyterian, Congregational, either way it's local eldership in connection with the broader body of Christ, like-minded churches. We'll leave it at there. But a um, couple of things you can read further on these things. I, I mentioned last week, uh, Ryan McGraw and Ryan Speck, is church membership biblical? If you want to think about that a little bit more. I also mentioned my top recommendation, The Glorious Body of Christ by R.B. Kuyper. And this is a phenomenal book on the doctrine of the church. It talks about elders, pastors, deacons. It talks about the connection of the church uh, with others. Uh, and then another great place to look would be Louis Burkhoff, Manual for Christian of Christian Doctrine. Pages 279 through 305 discuss the nature of the church, what is the church, the government of the church, and the power or authority of the church. So I recommend that as well, especially if you want to be thinking more about uh, church discipline and church government. Lord willing, next week we come back and consider the final pillar in our series, uh, which is the Reformed view of last things, or Reformed views of, last, of the last things, eschatology in times. Have a great week.